0: Trust everybody did their homework? I left home. Oh no, the probably ate it too. <laughs> All right. Last song. Now under the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is 1 Timothy 1 17. And if you were to talk about, started talking about God to someone who had no idea about Him, what chapter in Acts would you go to? Amen. Acts 17. Good. All right. So this morning, I want you to flip to Deuteronomy 32 and 4. Deuteronomy. That's a funny name, right? It's Greek for second law. You'll find that Deuteronomy is a recap. Moses, now at the end of his life, is doing a second telling of the law to the new generation that has risen up to be adults because the first generation all died off in the wilderness when they disobeyed. So Deuteronomy is in Greek for second law. God, in chapter 31, tells Moses... You're going to have to teach these people a song, and that song will be a witness against them for when they go and disobey. And so God is the author of this song, um, and Moses is teaching it to them. So it's referred to as Moses' song, but don't be confused, it's really God's. So starting in verse 30, let me just start in verse 1, 32. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. Verse 4 is where we want today. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are judgment. A God of truth, Without iniquity, just and right is He. So this is your memory verse for this week. And it turns out that there's a tune for this one as well. So it's, He is the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are judgment. A God of truth, without iniquity, just and right is He. Just and right is he, hallelujah, just and right is he. A God of truth without iniquity, just and right is he. All right, he is the rock. Not sure if that's going to stay on today. So this is going to be the verse that we're going to use to try to look at some of, at some aspects of God's character. Last week we were looking at some of God's, I'll, I'll use the term, attributes. But in that First 1 Timothy 1.17, we're looking at Him as the King, the Ruler, the Sovereign, the Master, the Owner of the Universe. And he was eternal, had no beginning, and has no end. He's immortal, He is unchanging, uncorruptible, invisible, and all-knowing, wise God. Everywhere present, and nowhere absent, and all-powerful. Right? Those are some, I'm going to call those attributes of God. And here we're going to look at some of the characteristics of God, something, some things about His character. Will we be able to cover it all? No. Will we have preaching this afternoon? Probably. Um, I trimmed down my notes to just a, sh- a brief 50 citations, so I hope y'all are ready to flip. We're going to first look at the definition here of rock. He is our rock. He is the rock. The rock. So a rock, properly it's a cliff. Um, generally a rock or a boulder. Also figuratively used as a refuge, an edge. Elsewhere it's translated as mighty. Same word. Also strength or strong. So I want you to think about this illustration of trying to describe your God who's really right? And so in one aspect that he is strong, mighty, an unchanging rock or cliff, somewhere worthy of going to refuge for. So which attributes is this pointing to? One is immutability, his immortality, he's unchanging, and another is his strength. Right? He's all powerful. Those are kind of the pieces that are blended together into this image of him as a rock. Okay? So we're going to look at some of the references where God is going to describe himself as being the rock and see what he teaches us. So Deuteronomy 32 and 18. Which probably your easiest flip of the day. Same chapter. It says, Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful and hast forgotten the God that formed thee. So here we've got the all-powerful God who begat thee and who formed thee. It's relating to Him as your creator. Right? How about in 1 Samuel 2, 2? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. There is none holy as the Lord. For there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. There's a lot going on in this verse. One, there is none holy as the Lord. He is unique. All right? There's none holiest. holy as holy uh, as one sacred, but set apart. It's different. The root word of that is clean or pure. He is the only one who's truly holy. There is none holy as the Lord. And that word Lord there is Jehovah, right? Which is the eternal God. You've got his uniqueness. You've got his eternalness. And there is none beside thee. Again, there's no other competition that he has. There is neither there neither is there any rock like our God. There's no other hiding place. There's no other strength. There's no other thing that doesn't change. He is the rock. Go so again to the next chapter, Second Samuel, second next book, Second Samuel, twenty-two. Second Samuel, chapter twenty-two. We pick up verses two and three. And he said, this is a a psalm of David, it'll show up elsewhere in the psalms itself, but here it's in Samuel, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, verse 3, the God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield, the horn of my salvation, my high tower, my refuge, my savior, thou savest me from the violence. Right? He is my rock. It also describes the fortress, your defense, your castle, your stronghold. My deliverer, the salvation. The God of my rock. In Him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn. I don't know why that won't stay on. So shut it off. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. And often the horns are used to describe power. You know, you think about the prophecies of the little horns rising up and then there's ten more. Those are powers. He is the power. He's the only power. For your salvation, my high tower, my refuge, and my Savior. Thou savest me from the violence. Same chapter, jump down. Verse 32, again he says, For who is God? Save the Lord. The Lord there is again um, Jehovah, the eternal God, who is a rock. Save our God. There's none like Him. There's no one else that you can put in His place or depend on like Him. He is our rock. All right? Oh, there's two different uses of the word God there in that verse. We'll just point out. For who is God? That word is the uh, Hebrew word El. It's an abbreviation of Elohim. It means mighty, strong. And then the, the end of it, save our God, is actually Elohim, which is the plural form of that, and that's used to refer to our God, plural God, in that he is one God and three persons. And we will talk about the Trinity another time. All right, And finally, I want Isaiah 26 and 4. Right. Just trying to flesh out this concept of him referring to himself as a rock, the mighty rock, the strong rock, unchanging. Isaiah 26 and verse four. Trust ye in the Lord, Jehovah. Trust ye in the Lord for how long? Forever. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. That word rock is translated there as strength. Same word. Trust ye in the Lord. So that's... Literally it says trust ye in Jehovah forever for the Lord Jehovah Jehovah is the everlasting strength. All right? And that word uh, Lord there right before Jehovah is a, an abbreviation of Lord of Jehovah. It's Jah. Um, and that's used to have vehemence. Um, it's like a superlative. Like we use very, very eternal God. Um, so there's, it's, it's extra emphasis on the eternal God that you're referring to. Okay? Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah, for in the Lord Jehovah's is everlasting strength. All right? He has got all the power. Period. <laughs> okay? All right. So... Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32 and 4. It starts with He is the rock. Okay? He is the Rock. And mostly that focused on the attributes that we looked at last week. So next is His work is perfect. His work is perfect. Alright, and that word work there will translate to Acts, works, deeds, doings, makings. What he does. What he completes, what he does. Work. Perfect. Perfect means entire. Without blemish. Complete, full upright, whole, okay? All His work. His work is perfect. His work is perfect. Alright? Let's go back to the beginning. Genesis 1 and verse 31. God has made everything, and this is His response. He saw everything that He had made, Genesis one thirty-one, and behold, it was very Good. That word very there also means uh, vehemence. Holy good. Exceedingly good. Utterly good. Very good. All right. And that good word just means good, just in the widest sense possible. It's good. Okay. Everything that he made was very good. Okay. Go to Psalm 19 and 7. That includes his law. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Unchanging. Immutable. Making wise the simple. Okay? So all His works are perfect. The law is perfect. Let's go again to... uh, Let's go forward to Ecclesiastes 3.14. The preacher... Most likely Solomon writing, Ecclesiastes 3 and 14. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And and God doeth it that men should fear before Him. Whatsoever He does, it's going to be forever. Nothing can be put, put to it or taken from it. Because God do it; His work is perfect; it's complete; it doesn't have fault or blemish. Okay, and we should fear Him before it. If you go to chapter seven of Ecclesiastes, you can see reference to the creation of men itself. When He created us, He created us perfect. Ecclesiastes seven twenty-nine. Lo, this only have I found that God hath made man upright. But they have sought out many inventions. When he created man in the garden, it was perfect. It was after the sin of Adam and Eve disobeying that we all fell. And you have this nature that seeks out many inventions. In other words, that could be contrivances, war machines. Um, but we have an, an evil imagination. You can see that that was what was described back in Noah's day. Um, their their evil imaginations. Okay. Let's go forward to Ezekiel to look at that same concept one more time. Ezekiel twenty-eight and fifteen. The context of this is the city of Tyre, but it, it's also true for for men. Ezekiel 28 and 15, it says, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was formed in thee. So this is the Lord, His works are perfect, and then an iniquity was found in us and, and we, are, we are no longer perfect, obviously. Okay? So His work is perfect. Creation, the law, even man, though we've fallen. Okay? Go back to Deuteronomy 32 and 4. All his ways are judgment. We would use the expression sometimes that the, the uh, ends justify the means. Right? The end would be what we're referring to as our work, what we're trying to accomplish. The ways would be how we get there, the means. Right? Both God's work is perfect and the ways that he gets there, gets there, his manner of action, his modes of course of action, they're right as well. It's described here as judgment. For all his ways are judgment. So a way is literally a road, but figuratively means a course of life or a mode of action. And so for God, we're thinking about how does he accomplish his works, his designs, his will. And that word judgment literally means a, a verdict pronounced judicially, um, especially a sentence or formal decree. Uh, includes the act, the place, the suit, the crime, the penalty. Abstractly, it refers to justice and all. What is all that Translate for you and me. It means that the way God does things, it's not arbitrary. It's not vindictive. Everything He does is just. Not only the end result, but the way He gets there. It's just. Okay? Deuteronomy 10 and 18, you You'll have to flip there, it says, He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. So from... Uh, the beginning, there's numerous references to God defending the weak and the powerless, the ones who don't have the might in this world, that He is the one who's going to execute judgment on their behalf. Okay? Go to Job 35. We'll see this concept of judgment and this uh, courtroom, if you will. Job 35 and 14. Although thou sayest, thou shalt not see him, yet judgment is before him. Therefore, trust thou in him. Now this is Elihu speaking. That was the fourth speaker. He's the most reliable one in the book of Job. He's the one who's speaking on God's behalf. He's saying, although thou sayest, thou shalt not see him, the invisible God, right? Yet judgment is before him. So this is your your scene in your head is that God is sitting as the judge, like in a courtroom. It's before him. It's not hidden. The things that are going on aren't hidden to him. He's all seeing. His eyes see everything. And he is ruling and decreeing in a just manner. Okay. If you go forward to Psalm 9 and 16. Psalm 9 and 16 says, The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. The Lord is known by the judgment. He we can observe the characteristics of the Lord based on how he executes judgment. He is known by his judgment, which he executes. His his verdicts that he renders, which he executes how he completes them, how he does it. Mm -hmm. Psalm eighteen and verse thirty. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in Him. His way is perfect. All right. So one, it's got His ways are judgment. Here, all of His ways are perfect. They're complete. They're entire. They're without blemish. Okay? Go again forward to Psalm 97. Psalm 97, verse 2. Let's pick up verse 1. The Lord reigneth, king, master, sovereign. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of the isles be glad thereof. Verse 2. Clouds and darkness are round about him or encircle him. There is an obscurity around him. He is the invisible God. You can't see him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. And that word habitation means the basis. The foundation of his ruling is righteousness and judgment. Justice. The words that he pronounces are just and righteous. Okay. That's an interesting word picture there. You can imagine that throne sitting on those foundation and yet obscured and where you cannot see it clearly now. Go again to Psalm ninety seven. No, excuse me, ninety-nine. Psalm ninety-nine and verse four. The king's strength, this is referring to the Lord as the king, the king's strength also loveth judgment. Thou dost establish equity, thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob, the king's strength. The strength there uh, means his might, his power. The Lord's power loves judgment, loves justice, loves righteous judgment. Isn't that encouraging to you? You don't serve a vindictive, spiteful, arbitrary God. Anybody here as a parent ever said that you've been perfectly just in how you disciplined your children? No. We get tired, we get irritated, we get frustrated, and we take it out on the little person who happens to be annoying us the most at that time. Our God isn't like that. He loves, His power loves judgment, righteousness, justice. Okay? Okay. You get some legal words after that about thou establish equity. To establish means to set it up. Equity is a great legal word. It means equalness. It means fairness. But in God's sense, not you and I's you know, childhood sense of, well, that's not fair. Right? That means I don't have exactly what you have. But God knows what is best, and he does things in a manner that is equitable or equal, treating all folks equally. Thou executest or doest judgment and righteousness. And that word righteousness there means translates to, to rightness. Objectively, just. Morally, virtuous. Right? Justice. Okay. Let's go forward to Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30 and verse 18. And therefore will the Lord wait, that He may be gracious unto you, and therefore will He be exalted, that He may have mercy upon you, for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for Him when we talked about His ways and thoughts being so much higher than ours, higher than the heavens are from the sky, He can be just and righteous in His divine choice to delay an answer. You can continue to go through that trial that you really want to get out of. But in His goodness, and His mercy, He can choose to wait to answer that. Because here it says, Therefore will the Lord wait, that He may be gracious unto you, to be gracious, to give favor. And therefore, will He be exalted? By His delaying, He gets more glory. He's going to be lifted up higher in your eyes and in your life. That He may have mercy upon you, extending what you need when He deems you need it. Need it. For the Lord is a God of judgment. So He is not just letting you hang in the wind to see you flap like a fish, because it's funny. Right? It's for His glory. He is a God of judgment. Justice and equity. Okay, the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Go forward again to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. And we'll pick up 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. All right. So if you're smart, strong, or rich, don't glory in those things. Verse 24. But let him that glorieth glory in this that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. saith the Lord. Those three things the Lord says He delights in. He enjoys. Those are things that please Him. Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. I am the Lord. You or I, as fallen creatures, if we had unlimited power, unlimited resources, do you think those would be the three things that we would delight in? If you look through the history of the human race, those who rise to power tend to fall the hardest, right, as they're pursuing the things of this world. But our God is so much better than that. He delights in loving kindness, showing mercy. He loves injustice, judgment and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Let's go forward again to Hosea. Hosea 14 and 9. It's close after Daniel. We don't go to Hosea very often. Hosea 14 and 9 says, Who is wise? And he shall understand these things prudent and he shall know them for the ways of the Lord are right and the just shall walk in them but the transgressors shall fall therein. So we're talking about the ways of the Lord being perfect all of his ways for the ways of the Lord are right all right And then finally look at Romans 2 and 5. Romans two and five. We'll just jump in here. I'll give the context, but Romans two and five. But after their hardness and impenitent heart, treasured up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And those words translate to the just sentence. So He loves justice. He delights in it, and He will give it. Okay, a righteous judgment, a just sentence from God referring to the, the day of wrath for when he will render recompense or the sentence for all those that Christ did not die for on the cross. All right. Deuteronomy 32 4. All right. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his work is perfect. All his ways are judgment or just. A God of truth. The God of truth, okay? So there the God we referred to is that word earlier, El, the abbreviation of Elohim, refers to His strength, the Mighty One, the Mighty God, the Almighty of truth. And that word truth there literally means firmness, security, oral fidelity, or faithfulness. He's steady. And it gets into that aspect of His unchanging character. God is not a man that He can lie. Right? So if you go back to Exodus 34, when Moses requested to see God's face, and he told him that, no, you can't see my face, no one shall see my face and live, but I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand, and then as I pass by, I'll let you see the hind parts, and you can see a portion of his goodness when he removed his hand. Okay, so this is Exodus 34, and in verse 6, We'll start in verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children of the third and fourth generation. So, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. So that that little clause there of the Lord, abundant in goodness and truth, is all all I want to think about this morning as we're trying to see where else God has revealed Himself to be a God of truth. So this is God coming to uh, pass before Moses... And that's one of the ways he describes himself. Abundant in goodness and in truth. Okay? Merciful. The Lord God merciful means compassionate. Compassionate. And gracious means the bending down to bestow kindness. You've got this image of the superior bending down to give a kindness unto the inferior. That's, that's, That's us. You know, the Lord has to stoop down to look into His creation, much less to look down to us individually and show us kindness. Okay? And that truth there uh, is a slightly different word from Deuteronomy 32.4. This one means stability, truth, trustworthiness. He is trustworthy. Your God is trustworthy. Okay? He's faithful and sure. All right. Psalm 31 and five. Oh, yeah. Psalm 31 and 5. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Truth. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth of truth again that truth there means stability truth trustworthiness Psalm 100 verse 5 For the Lord is good His mercy is everlasting His truth endureth for all generations The Lord is good He's righteous His mercy His compassion is everlasting and his truth endureth to all generations. Okay. Let's go again to Psalm one hundred forty six. Psalm one forty six verses five and six. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is therein, creator, which keepeth truth forever. And that word keepeth there means to guard or hedge about, protects the truth forever. Okay? Not only is the Lord a God of truth, he guards that truth. He protects it, it cannot uh, fail. You know, Jesus would say that you know, heaven and earth may pass away, but not one of His words would. It's His truth. He was the truth. Right? He will not fail. Let's go again to Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, verse 1. O Lord, Jehovah, Thou art my God. I will exalt Thee, lift Thee up. I will praise, means to adore Thy name, for Thou hast done wonderful things. Okay, all His works, right? They're perfect. There's ways to accomplish them there. For they have, Thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Faithfulness and truth. That word faithfulness is the same one as we got of God of truth. It's Strong's 530. And then that truth there is actually translate to verity. Verity is a true principle or belief, especially one of fundamental importance. So you've got really a repetition there of truth and stableness. My right? counsel of old are faithfulness and truth. Thou hast done wonderful things. And that counsel there means his plans, his designs, his will. Okay? A God of truth Go again forward to Jeremiah. Jeremiah ten ten. Jeremiah ten ten. But the Lord is the true God, He is the living God, an everlasting King. At his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. The Lord is the true God. He's trustworthy. He's firm, he's stable, unchanging. The true God, he's a living God, literally he's alive, as opposed to the idols that folks were carrying around, which are just trees and sticks and stones. He is a living God, an everlasting king, the ruler, the supreme authority. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble. That word wrath means a splinter or a chip off, but figuratively it means rage or strife. Um, Also translated to foam. See the... uh, intense uh, visual picture of the the Lord's anger, strife, and the the foaming. And then the Lord, the nation shall not be able to abide His indignation. Indignation means uh, fury, anger, rage, particularly at sin. He's an all-powerful God, everlasting King, living, true, and unchanging. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. 32 and 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are judgment. A God of truth. And without iniquity. What's iniquity? It's evil. Perverseness. Any unjustness. Any unrighteousness. Wickedness. Okay? Back in Genesis when Abraham is trying to negotiate with the Lord, when he's visited him on the plain, they're looking towards Sodom and Gomorrah, they've told that he's going to destroy it, and uh, Abraham's trying to get a countdown, well, will you destroy it if there's so many people, 50 and 45 and 40 and so on. Get to Genesis 18 and 25, it starts with the 50 in verse 24, Per adventure there be 50 righteous within the city, without not destroy and not spare the place for 50 righteous that there that are therein. For this is this is his argument in verse 25. That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Okay? So as his role as judge, he is going to do right and here you get the first glimpse of the separation of the righteous and the wicked, and that the righteous are not going to bear the same punishment as the wicked. Okay? Shall not the judge of the earth be right? And that word judge there means to, literally, to judge, to pronounce sentence, to vindicate or punish. Far be it from thee to slay the righteous with the wicked, and the righteous shall be as the wicked. If that be far from thee. This, this thought of God doing something that's not right needs to be just far out of your thoughts. It's just about inconceivable. Okay. Remember, He's not a man. He's not a man that He should lie. He is not like us, and we don't need to attribute our faults and failures to Him. Okay. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? And the answer is obviously yes, He will. If He's not doing right, then He's no longer God and no longer qualified to judge. Okay. Second uh second chronicles 19 okay second chronicles 19 and verse 7. We'll just back up to verse 6. The context is there. He's given a charge to these judges. It says, Take heed what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore, now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. Okay? Uh, the context there is he's given the judges the charge to judge faithfully, and the reason he's backing it up is because you're not responsible to answer to us, you're answering to God himself, and he is the perfect righteous judge. There is no iniquity. You can't bribe him. He doesn't care if you're rich or poor. He does it all in equity and justice. There is no iniquity in him. Okay, Zero. Over in Job, as they're having the back and forth with the the three miserable comforters. One of them, Bildad, is going to ask the question in verse uh, 3 of chapter 8, Doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? And That's his question. Later in chapter 34, Elihu, again, the more reliable fourth friend, is going to answer that question. 34, 10 and 12, 10 through 12. Therefore hearken to me, ye men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness. Put it far out of your mind that you should even think that. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. For the work of a man shall he render unto him and cause every man to find according to his ways. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert justice. Answer the question. So no, he will not sin. He will not commit iniquity. He will not pervert justice. What this is ultimately going to carry on to is why God just can't look the other way about your sin. And why Christ had to pay for the sin, because he is a God of justice. He cannot do iniquity to ignore it. Okay? Let's go forward to Psalm 92. I'm just going to really hammer this home about there being no sin, no iniquity within our God. Psalm 92 and 15. context here is talking about um, even in the old age that the righteous can still continue to bear fruit. Okay? The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that, sh- that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. And that fat means productive um, with their fruit. Verse 15, to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in Him. It's pretty clear. There is no unrighteousness in Him. Again, get the reference to Him being our rock. He's the unchanging, mighty God, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Go forward a little farther to Zephaniah 3 and 5. We'll have a race so you can get to Zephaniah first, right? Shortly after Micah. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. Zephaniah 3 and 5. The just Lord is in the midst thereof, God of justice. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light or reveals it. He faileth not, and the unjust knoweth not. No, but the unjust knoweth no shame. So the just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. So he's already got his judgment. He is slowly revealing it. Right. He will not do iniquity. All right. Let's go a little bit farther to Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1 and 13. It says, Thou art purer of eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Okay? Now... How do we square this with God being the all-knowing God, ever-present God? There are things that He cannot actually see and doesn't actually know. Can He not literally look on evil and not uh, behold evil and not look on iniquity? No. That would be inconsistent with our understanding of Him knowing and seeing everything. But the words there, behold and look upon, have an element within them of enjoy or to regard with pleasure. Okay? Okay? God is not going to look at evil and ever enjoy it. He's not going to look at iniquity and ever be able to regard it with pleasure. That is contrary to His character and to His nature. There is no iniquity within Him, and He does not delight in iniquity. You'll read in Romans chapter 1, it'll talk about those that are of this world that are not only doing this whole list of nasty and vile things, not only are they doing them, what they're going to delight in others that do them with them, knowing that such things are even worthy of death. God is not like that. He does not engage in iniquity, nor does he regard it with pleasure. Okay? Um, If you're curious what old Dr. John Gill would say, he said, The Lord, with his eyes of omniscience, omniscience, all-knowing, beholds all things good and evil and all men good and bad, with all their actions. But he does not look upon the sins of men with pleasure and approbation, since they are contrary to his nature, repugnant to his will, and breaches of his righteous law. So that's just a commentator's summary. Um, Take that for what you will, but I tend to agree with him on this one topic. All right. Let's go forward to Romans chapter 3. Paul, kind of like he's a law school teacher, is going to ask questions and then argue against himself. He will often give you a clue that he's doing this because he'll use the expression afterwards saying, I speak as a man. And what he means by that is, I am going to give you mankind's argument or questions they may ask, and then I am going to give you the answer to it. So, Romans three, verses five and six. But if our righteousness commend our, excuse me. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Parentheses. I speak as a man. So that's you know mankind's question: Is God unrighteous? The answer is God forbid. Don't even think it. Don't even say that God is unrighteous. For then how shall God judge the world? That harkens back to Abraham, right? Shall the, God, shall the judge of all the world um, do right? Shall not the judge of all the world do right? Yes, he have to. If he was unrighteous, then he would not be able to, to judge the world. Um, so the answer there is, is God forbid. Is God unrighteous? God forbid that you'd say that. For then how shall God judge the world? All right, and then again in Romans 9, we'll have another, God forbid, answer to a question. Romans nine thirteen through 15. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Again, referring to the two children of Isaac and how God chose Jacob and put him in favor, even though by nature he was the kind of nasty little snot, right? He was the sneaky one, but he was the one that God put his love upon, um, When he was unrighteous, right? There's nothing meritorious about him. But as written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is it unrighteous with God for him to choose one and not another? The answer to that is, God forbid that you'd say he's unrighteous. But verse 15 says, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So it is not unrighteous for God to make a choice between one and another. As the sovereign God of the universe, with all of His creation, He has the right to do with it as He will. He has the choice to have mercy upon who He will have mercy. It is not an unrighteous thing to do. And there is no unrighteousness in Him. And finally, let's go to the last book in Revelation. Look at 16. 16 and verse 7. I heard out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. All of his judgments, all of his decisions are true, truthful, righteous, equitable, and holy. He has no iniquity within him. Everything that he decrees is righteous and true. Alright? What comes next in Deuteronomy? He's a God of truth without iniquity. Just, just and right is he, just, all right? Just means, it's just, lawful, righteous, all right? In Second Chronicles 12 and 6, um, the princes and kings of Israel would humble themselves and they would say, the Lord is righteous. That's the same word there, um, translated just. The Lord is righteous, the Lord is just. Let's go to ne- Nehemiah 9 and 32. This is after the Jews have come back from the captivity. Um, Nehemiah 9 and 32. Now therefore, our God, the great, powerful, the mighty, strong, the terrible. You know, that, that word terror, literally inspiring terror, it's closely connected to that word of fear. Right? We should fear the Lord and that's The moral reverence for your God. Why? Because of the extreme power, authority, rule that He has. For who He is and who His character is. This is not someone that we treat lightly or hold with disregard. The great, the mighty, the terrible God, who keepeth covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem Little before thee that hath come upon us, and our kings, and our princes, and our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and all thy people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. So he's saying, don't let all the troubles that we've had, though they seem really big to us, they said, don't let it seem little to you. Howbeit, thou art just in all that is done upon us. For thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. So Nehemiah is recognizing the wickedness that Israel and Judah had engaged in that led to be in captivity and he's saying that even though all these things happened to us and they were so bad he says even in all that he recognized thou art just. He is righteous to do that. Okay? Thou art just. For thou hast done right and that word right there is that same word we get back from truth, stability, firmness. But we have done wickedly. Go forward into the Psalms. Psalm 116. Oop, too far. Psalm 116 and verse 5. Gracious, or merciful, is the Lord, and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. The Lord is Righteous. That word righteous there is the same one translated as just. Just, lawful, righteous. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Psalm 129 and 4 say, The Lord is righteous. He hath cut asunder the cords of the wicked. Psalm 145, The Lord is righteous or just in all His ways and holy in all His works. Let's go to Jeremiah 12 and 1. Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Righteous or just art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal treacherously? And so Jeremiah here is acknowledging, Lord, you're righteous, um, but let me complain a little bit. Because he doesn't like that the Lord is delaying the punishment upon these wicked. He's, he's, He's right in the first part. Of acknowledging the righteousness of God, the justness of God, but he's also impatient of waiting, not waiting for the Lord's perfect timing. If you go to the next book also written by Jeremiah, it's Lamentations. Lamentations 1 and 18. We'll have another acknowledgement of the Lord's righteousness or justness. Lamentation 1 18. The Lord is righteous. Same word translated, just. For I have rebelled against his commandments. Here I pray you, all my people. Behold my sorrow. My virgin and my young men are gone into captivity. The Lord is righteous. He's just. He's just. And Jeremiah, in your context, is that everyone in Judah is about to go into captivity um, for that period of 70 years. He's one of the last prophets who's there watching it all um, transpire. And even as it's going down, as the, the world is falling apart, he's still able to acknowledge that the Lord is just and righteous in his actions. Okay, now Let's go to Daniel 9 and 14. Daniel 9 and 4, 14. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all His works which He doeth, for we obeyed not His voice. Again, you've got to understand the Lord is righteous or just, not only just some of His ways and works, but in all of them. And you may say, well, Brother John, you are kind of beating a dead horse. Maybe. But if you're anything like me, sometimes I'm a little slow <laughs> to internalize these. And I just wanted you to know how many times God repeats himself to reveal to us things about himself. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is just. All right, And then the last one is just and right is he. Just and right is he. That's, uh, that word there, right, um, translates more to straight. Um, that which is equitable, that which is upright, um so righteousness and straightness you know sometimes preachers will make jokes about you know lord can hit a straight lick with a crooked crooked stick and that's kind of funny (laughs) but that crookedness of us really is a real negative like it's not a joke that there is nothing crooked or off center or not plumb about god you know when You and I build a wall, we try to make it so it's straight up and down, right? Because you don't want it to lean and eventually topple. God is perfectly straight. There's nothing about Him that is off center or crooked. But everything you and I touch is a little bit cattywamped, a little skewed because of our imperfections, because of our sin. Patrick, sit. Okay? Psalm 25 and 8. Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore will He teach sinners in the way. So our Lord is good and upright. He is straight. There's no crookedness about Him. He's righteous. He is the Lord, and therefore will He teach us. Teach us in His way. Go again forward to 33. thirty three and verse 3, three. Four. Sing unto him a new song, play skillfully with a loud noise. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of his goodness. Okay? These are more things that he loves. It's a repetition The Righteousness, which is virtue, And judgment or justice is right, verdicts. The earth is full of his goodness. But the word there, the word for the word of the Lord is right. That's your word, straight, upright. Okay. Psalm 92 and 15. Psalm 92 and verse 15. We looked at this earlier. To show that the Lord is. Upright, same word there, and right is He, the Lord, to show that my Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Our Lord is straight. Our Lord is perfect in all His ways. Psalm one eleven, verses seven through eight: the works of His hands are verity means truth and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever, and are done in truth and righteousness. You know, see in the pattern, right? These are not only repetitious, but they also overlap. About the Lord being just, he is upright, his works done eternally, they don't fail. He is He is the one thing that you can depend on. Not to change, not to go away, not to eventually burn up. And the more that we learn about his character, the more that we can actually internalize that, the more joy you can have in his word because you can trust it more. It's not like the the word that, you know, if you or I just say anything, okay. But how long can we back up whatever it is we said? Maybe as long as we're alive, but generally we fail way before then. But God's the unending God, without beginning, without end. And He doesn't change. He cannot change. He doesn't lie. He cannot lie. There's no iniquity in Him. Who else is worthy of your trust? That's why in verse 10 it would say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a lot of worldly wisdom that you can go. There's a lot of letters you can get after your name. But if you haven't started from the point of the fear of the Lord, you're not even there. You're not on the right track. You're not even on the right road. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As you start to learn a little bit more about your great God, the might that He has, the knowledge, the power, His character, there's more things there for you to fear and to be in awe of and to be in, in terror It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's not a light expression, it's not colorful language. Psalm 119 37 says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. For next week, I want y'all to read Psalm 97. Psalm 103, Psalm 111, Jeremiah chapter 10, and Daniel chapter 4. Okay. And as you're reading through them, not only do I want you to consider the characteristics of God that we've talked about today, about being, um, His ways being perfect, His works being perfect, his God of truth, no iniquity he's just he's righteous he's right upright but also consider the attributes that we talked last time about him being the eternal God the immortal God the invisible God the all knowing God the all powerful God and you know as we're going through that, that song that because he lives um, we're still on the first word right are still on God there's a lot there to try and wrap our head around um and we might do one more message on it or, or more, but that's where, we're, that's where we're going. We're trying to answer the question of how do I tell someone about my Jesus? Well, I can't really do that unless I tell them about my God first and how perfect He is and how holy He is and how He is very different than all the images and caricatures that are out there in our culture of our God so I, I know this was a lot of, lot of verses and it may have even been hard to, to focus. Um, but these are, these are worth taking the time to go through and establish over and over and over again what God reveals about Himself. I mean, that's ultimately what He's doing in His Word is He's revealing His immortal and eternal self to you, His creature. And so it behooves us it's important to spend our time trying to figure out more about Him so we can have a better understanding of our God, not be left with our sad caricatures, right? These false, weak little versions of a God, God that looks like us or acts like us or is vindictive like us. Like we mentioned last time about Greek mythology, you go study Greek mythology, it's basically a bunch of humans, but with you know, powers. You know, We now call it like Marvel. Right? Those, all those movies about strong dudes with same human flaws that's not our God you have a perfect upright righteous God with whom there is no iniquity everything he does is just not only the end result but the whole way that he gets there he's special he is unique he's worthy of your praise and honor and that's not just lip service You know, sometimes we'll use the phrase, we give you all the praise and honor, but then really we spend most of our time praising ourselves, right? Praising other people who we think have real power. And maybe we don't even do it consciously, but there is, I think, great value in taking time to to study our Lord. Thank you all for your time and attention. Anybody have a number you'd like to sing in closing? Four seventy.